So we've got this big passage to look at today, and it's going to be tricky. Um, there is obviously an awful lot to cover. There are five little segments of the story here that come in the run-up to Easter. And there is much more to be had from these passages than we're going to have time to chew on this morning. So, so please, during this week, maybe in, in your home groups or in your own quiet times, please do come back to this and chew over it some more. Um, it's also going to be difficult because it's familiar territory. If you've been a believer for a while, you may have read this passage or others like it tens or hundreds of times. But even if you're new to faith, some of the ideas here are just familiar. They've permeated our culture. Peter's three denials before the cock crows. Uh, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Betrayal with a kiss. And when a passage is this familiar, it's really hard for us to look past what we already think we know. So before we go any further, why don't I pray for God's help in making sense of this? Father God, please be with us this morning. Please put your spirit at work. Please give me the right words to say in the right manner. Please give us receptive hearts. And show us in this passage truths about you and your son, which will transform us and feed us for the week ahead. Amen. So we're working through this series through Lent and the run up to Easter Sunday. And we're following the chapters in Matthew's gospel that lead up to that crucifixion. Two weeks ago, if you were here, Lewis showed us the priests and Judas laying the groundwork for Christ's arrest. And the woman at Bethany outraging the disciples with extravagant worship. Last week, David took us through the Last Supper. And we shared communion together. And, and this week, we pick up straight off the back of that. So they've finished their meal, they, they sing a psalm together, and they go out onto the Mount of Olives. They head for Gethsemane. The cross looms large. And the question I want us to grapple with this morning is this. How is Christ's mission achieved? What does this show us about that mission, about us, and about him? And we're going to look at it in three chunks. And each time we're going to narrow down slightly more into the center of the passage. So first, looking at the whole thing together, I think one of the things that Matthew shows us here is what doesn't work for salvation. So verses 31 to 75, we see the disciples' attitude. Our passage starts in verse 31 with Jesus and his disciples leaving the meal they head outside, they make their way to Gethsemane, and Christ tells them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. And he quotes from Zechariah 13, where God says to Old Testament Israel, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. If you want to, you could flick back to Zechariah 13, it's on page 957 in these church Bibles. Zechariah is quite a tricky book. Uh, we don't look at it very often. It, it, it's written to Israel as they're returning from exile. And they're rebuilding the temple and they're reestablishing their nation. And it talks about how God is going to care for Judah. How he is going to judge their enemies. How he is going to provide for them what they really need. 
And one of the key themes throughout all of Zechariah's prophecy is that it's going to be achieved not by their power, but by God's hand. The Lord promises in chapter 4, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, this is going to happen. And so towards the end of the book, in Zechariah 13 verse 1, God promises them a way that the the re-established nation of Israel can even have their central problem resolved. He says, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That is the sin and the impurity which sent them into exile in the first place and which throughout their history has consistently spoiled and poisoned their relationship with God. The Lord says, I am going to cleanse you. And then in verse 7 of chapter 13, as Jesus quotes, he, he seems to indicate that this will be achieved when the sword of the Lord turns on his servant, striking the shepherd, scattering the sheep. And then in the next two verses, he shows that this is how the Lord will call a remnant of the people to himself. Verse 9, I will refine them like silver. I will test them like gold. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Back to Matthew 26. This is what Jesus is talking about. God is about to open a fountain in Jerusalem for the cleansing of sin. And he is going to refine his people through hardship. And he speaks with confidence. I tend to miss that. In verse 32, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. This isn't all doom and gloom from Jesus. Now the Lord is going to do mighty things by his spirit. But, But see what happens next? Peter says, no. No, look, Jesus, you've got it wrong. I will never fall away from you. Even if all these other chumps do. You can imagine the other disciples being a bit cheesed off at this stage. And Jesus says, Peter, you're missing the points. Verse 34. This very night you are going to disown me. You're not strong enough, Peter. You can't stand firm enough. Peter says, no, I'm, I'm better than that. I love you more than that, Jesus. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I can stand. And so in these five episodes we've got this morning, Matthew shows us that this is not how salvation works. And we get a painful dissection of Peter's hubris. So verses 31 to 35, Jesus offers his disciples comfort in the face of their impending failure. And Peter rejects it, essentially says, I'm too faithful to need that, Jesus. And then verses 36 to 46, we see exactly how strong they are. Jesus, in his moment of great distress, is the moment where perhaps we think of him as being the, the closest he gets to cracking. And all creation is on tenterhooks to see what's going to happen. And Jesus takes these disciples to pray with him and they fall asleep. And he comes back and and wakes them up and that must have been painful. 
And even then, he says to them in verse 41, look, if you want to stand, pray now. If you want to stand firm, pray now so that you won't fall into temptation. Your flesh is weak, but God's spirit is strong. That's how you could stand, not by your might, not by your power. But their eyes are heavy and they sleep again. Right up till it's too late in verse 45 and his hours come. Third episode, you get verses 47 through 56 and the time for Jesus' arrest is there. And it should be said, this is no surprise, is it? He's been telling them right the way through his ministry that this is what's meant to happen. But even just within chapter 26, he's told them this repeatedly. Look back to verse 2. And you see, he tells them the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Look at verse 12. And he tells them, this lady has just prepared me for my burial. Even within this same evening, verses 21 to 24, he said, One of you will betray me, and the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. Verse 29, I am not going to drink wine with you again until the Father's kingdom is here. Verse 31 to 32, the shepherd is going to be struck. But after I've died and risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. This arrest is no surprise. This is how Jesus has consistently chosen for it to go. So why does a disciple draw a sword in verse 51? What's going on there? In John's gospel, we find that that's Peter himself. Why is there fighting? How come at this climactic moment of Jesus' mission, he has to stop and rebuke a disciple who thinks he can win by violence? Peter and the disciples, they still seem to think that they can do it for themselves. But their might and their power is not enough. And so in verse 56, what happens? They desert him and flee. Fourth episode, we, we see Peter next in verses 57 onwards. And to his credit, he has tagged along to see what happens. But it's not the bluster of verse 35, is it? He hangs about in the courtyard in verse 58. He's not bold enough to walk in and die with his Lord. And then finally, agonizingly over the page, verses 69 to 75. And, and it comes to the crunch and Peter folds. How, how could he there admit to being a believer? It would put him straight into danger, trial and, and probably death. It's funny, three witnesses come to him and accuse him. Two women and a man. That, that's enough under Judaic law to condemn him. And three times he convicts himself. I don't know the man, he says. And it's the same judgment that Jesus makes in chapter 7, verse 23, when he, he's talking about false disciples who will come and expect their deeds to have placed them in heaven. And Jesus warns, he will say, I don't know you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Peter can't stand by himself. 
It's not by his might. It's not by his power. And so as he sees this, he, he goes and he weeps bitterly because he has failed and he has deserted the Holy One of Israel. Message there for us? Well, sometimes when we're reading these kind of passages, it's easy with our hindsight to think of the disciples as sort of well-intentioned but hapless muppets, right? And, and we look at the things that they do wrong and we, we think, okay, don't do that. Um, that's to do them a disservice, probably. It fools us into thinking that we're better. Remember, these guys, they were the apostles. Their flesh was weak here, but by God's spirit, they are transformed into titans of the faith. So, so we don't want to say, oh, don't be like Peter, don't be like silly disciples. I think the point is, I am like Peter. I get all my priorities wrong. I cling to all the wrong stuff all the time, and I let go of Jesus while I do it. Don't you? Ask yourself, how many times have I pledged faithfulness like Peter in verse 33? And imagine that through strength of character or discipline, I, I can live rightly. How has that turned out? How many times have I slept or ate or relaxed or read a book or watched TV? All of that's fine. But how many times have I done that when I've known that there was a call to prayer in my heart? I'm conscious of often having ignored the urgency of prayer. How many times have I, like Peter drawing his sword, thought to win by my strength or wit or knowledge and not depended on the Lord? How many times have I sat safely quiet rather than stepping into dangerous territory and showing my faith? How many times have I essentially denied the Lord by trying to look normal and escape people's attention rather than own up to being a Christian? Maybe Christians are like Peter. We get it wrong. We depend on our own resources all the time. And, and so it's fabulous news for us that this passage is recorded here. Because it can only have come from Peter's testimony. He, he failed utterly. He mourned bitterly in recognition of it. And yet, he's shown great grace. He's reinstated as an apostle and Jesus uses him to establish and nurture the church. I wonder how many of us have felt like verse 75 and had times of bitter weeping and mourning when we've seen how badly we've gone wrong. Perhaps it's when an ambition fails or, or a career or a relationship collapses away from us and we see that all our eggs were in that basket and we're left with nothing. Perhaps we've been badly hurt by, by sin within Christian circles. Or perhaps we've seen the hurt that we've caused others. Or perhaps it's that mortification at our failure and a sense that everyone else can see just how badly we fall short when our ministry doesn't come to fruition or, or we know we've let people down. 
But Jesus' message has always been consistently, not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit you'll be saved. Verse 31, you will all fall away. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you. So second chunk, verses 36 to 68, narrowing in. Let's look at Christ's approach shown through these passages in the middle three episodes. Um, In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul writes to encourage struggling believers. And there's that famous passage in Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And we see some of that here, don't we? It's astounding. There is the incredible pain of Christ's position and the utter injustice There's the abandonment and the the harsh irony of the situation. And yet, he bears it willingly. As they enter this garden of Gethsemane, in verse 36, which means, by the way, the oil press. It's the place where the fruit of the vineyards of Israel is squeezed and pressed and crushed to give precious oil. As they enter that garden, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his three closest friends. He calls them on to pray with him, saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we see Jesus engaging emotionally. We, We see him weep for his friends. He's outraged by disease and brokenness. He's angered by corruption. But nowhere else, I think, do we see him as vulnerable as this. And he asks these intimate friends to pray with him. But presumably he knows that as he's struck, even these closest friends are going to fall away. Presumably he knows even then that even before he's struck, they don't share his priorities. They they will sleep rather than pray. They will fight rather than submit. And ultimately, of course, it's going to be one of his intimates, someone close enough to greet him with a kiss, who hands him over. These guys are not able to stand with him. That, of course, is exactly why they need his sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring them to God. There's this staggering solitude to Christ here. What's clearly worse is that The knowledge of what's yet to come. That at the cross, he will drink the cup of his father's wrath. And for the first time in all creation, he will be separated and cut off from the father. And and so we get verse 39, knowing what is to come and the horror of the cross. he, He prays, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Isn't it? striking that it's all right to ask God to take hardship away? Isn't it striking as well, though, that the second half of that prayer 
is that amazing submission. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, your will be done, Father. I I can't even begin to imagine the knee-knocking terror that I would have experienced in that garden. Or how I would have responded to it. But this is Christ. Who as Paul wrote, being in very nature God did not consider that something to be used to his advantage. But humbled himself by becoming obedient right through to death. The mind boggles. And then we look ahead to verses 57 to 68 and we see the beginnings of what he submitted himself to. A couple of weeks ago, Lewis pointed out how Matthew seems to use irony as he writes here. In verses 1 to 5 of the chapter, and the priest should be preparing the Passover lamb to sacrifice for sin and instead they're, they're laying plans for sinful murder without realizing that they're preparing Jesus, the true Passover. And there's further irony here, I think. What have we got? We've got in in verse 57 onwards, we've got the author of creation who will eventually sit in just judgment over creation. And he's being tried by a kangaroo court, which commentators identify, I'm told, at least 14 illegalities in. Well, then there's the absurdity of verses 59 and 60. That even when they go looking for false testimony to convict him, they can't get it. The only testimony that they put together from two witnesses in verse 61 is, is actually more or less true. Worded slightly wrong. But it's not enough to condemn him. And then what what does clinch the condemnation in verses 63 and 64? Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, charges him under oath. Uh, Apparently, that's one of the illegalities. In a trial where there's the death sentence, that wouldn't be allowed. But Jesus submits to it. Caiaphas charges him under oath to say if he's the Messiah. And the response is, you've said it. You're correct. You have acknowledged me as Messiah. And he refers them to these two Old Testament passages. Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel has a vision of the Lord, the sovereign God, who overthrows the beastly kingdoms of the world, including what looks like the Roman Empire. And then he sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to take the throne with God, to establish the Lord's rule forever. And Jesus has consistently aligned himself with that vision by taking that title, son of man. And more than that, though, in in verse 65, he talks about sitting at the right hand of the mighty one sorry that's not verse 65 64 and that seems to be a a reference to psalm 110 where david sings the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand and as the psalm goes on david sings about the lord raising up a priest king to rule the nation Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is saying, this is me. For a full picture of what that means, we would need to dive into Hebrews and, and we don't have time. But for now, it's enough to say Jesus is claiming both a kingship and a better class of priesthood than his accusers. He's saying, I supersede you. 
essentially, he's passing judgment on them and their priesthood. And yet he submits to their rule. And then we get verses 66 to 68, this last little irony. Do you see what they pronounce? He is worthy of death. And as the trial descends into utter illegality and they beat him, they acknowledge him as Messiah. That's their judgment. That is why they are killing him. That is why he is worthy to die for them. And maybe Revelation 5 springs to mind. In Revelation 5, John has a vision of the scroll of God's purposes and judgment. And he weeps and weeps because no one is good enough to open it. But then he sees the lamb who was slain. And every voice in heaven praises Jesus saying, you are worthy. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. These priests, the Sanhedrin, they, they don't realize it, but that is what they're declaring too. He is worthy. He's Messiah. This is what salvation looks like. Not the disciples' bluster. And we're left marveling at the humility of Jesus that he would submit himself to this. A quick point of application. Paul writes in Philippians that there is much to imitate from Jesus' attitude. With limitation, he is special. The lesson isn't stepping forward courageously and being the hero. That, that's peculiar to him. He's done that for us. But the New Testament writers push us to imitate this in the way we treat each other. So, Look at Jesus' patience with his disciples. That even as they consistently fail him, yet he bears with them. Even as they sleep when they should be praying for him, he wakes them mercifully and points them back to depending on the Father. Do we imitate that patience in the way that we bear with each other in church? basic truth is that churches are always going to be full of flawed and broken Christians. It, if you were looking for somewhere where you could hang out with people who are sorted, I'm sorry, you're lost. Other Christians are going to be frustrating and needy and weak and, and flat out annoying sometimes. Can we imitate Jesus in the way that we go the extra mile for people like that? how we bear with them, how we put up with them and cater for them and, and love them because we know how he has loved us. Look at Jesus' response to stress. His first recourse is to prayer. And what prayer? Humble prayer that puts the Father's will first. An honest prayer where he speaks truthfully of his frailty and fear and brings it before his father and longs for help. Friends, do we imitate that? Do we model that to each other in our individual and collective prayer lives? Or do we hold back? Do we keep shtum about the stuff that matters and not share it? 
Or like me, are you tempted to zone out during prayer time? Does it seem less important sometimes? Or look at Jesus' response to injustice. I am, I'm really quick in my heart to get puffed up and indignant when my privileges aren't met. Does that kind of frustration color our relationships within church? Or will we consciously, faithfully imitate him in making ourselves less for the sake of others and, and accept it when our toes are trod on? How does all of that play out in our home groups? In the way that we commit to people there and week on week show up so that we can encourage them? How does it work out in the people that we choose to talk to in church? Do we have our, our comfortable clique or, or do we reach out to know the whole family? How does it play out in the way that we make ourselves vulnerable and share honestly rather than holding back and being aloof? There's much that we can imitate here. But, before we finish, I don't think that's the main point. That's not where I want us to leave it this morning. So, last chunk. Let's zoom in closer on the central episode, on Christ's choice in verses 47 to 56. Cast your eyes back over that. As you're doing that, it's nested in the middle of the passage. So we go from Jesus predicting Peter's denial to Peter denying him. And in between, we've got Jesus submitting to his father's will in Gethsemane, and then Jesus submitting to trial in the Sanhedrin. And, and here, nested in the middle, is the arrest. And what I think Matthew emphasizes here, and what I find fascinating in verses 50 to, sorry, 52 to 54, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Verse 53 has to be one of Jesus' most outlandish claims, doesn't it? If you're visiting today or wouldn't call yourself a believer, I, I wonder how you respond to that. A guy is being arrested and apparently in all seriousness, he boasts that he could call an army of angels to defend him. It's delusional. It's beyond the level of naivety that we can comfortably ascribe to people in olden times. Just say they didn't know better. Taken together with the rest of Matthew's gospel, it's clear that this is a claim that we're to take literally. When he's raised from the dead in chapter 28, Jesus is accredited as the son of God. He's the son of man who will sit on a heavenly throne and rule. If this were a battle to be won by military might, then of course his father would provide troops. And if you want an idea of the size of the army that he's talking about, there, there wasn't even a single legion stationed in Judea at this time, but Roman rule was secure. 70 or 80 years earlier, Caesar had conquered Britain with just five legions. 
Not a single angel amongst them either. He's claiming ridiculous authority and power. But the punchline is verse 54. How then would scripture be fulfilled? This has been a recurring theme throughout Matthew's gospel. If you were with us before Christmas, you might remember that Advent series in the first couple of chapters of Matthew, where every passage makes reference to Old Testament quotes. And that goes on throughout Matthew's book. And partly that's because he's writing particularly to the Jewish people, and he wants to show them that Jesus is consistent with Old Testament Judaism. But partly as well, it's to show us about the nature of this Jesus and what he's done. Matthew wants us to realize as we read this that Jesus is not just a man who's ricocheting through life and making the best of a bad situation. He's not just a noble hero. He's the son of man. He's the author of creation. And from before the whole story began, he's made this active choice to end up here in this garden. And as he makes that choice, he's picking up and fulfilling a rich tapestry of language and imagery which has been used throughout his word to show us what God is like. So, for example, it is no accident that this is happening in a garden. Humans were made for the Garden of Eden. That's their natural habitat. But they fell in disobedience. Jesus here commits himself to obedience in a garden, undoing what was done before. And so Zechariah's promised fountain will be opened up to cleanse his people. And then in the end, Revelation describes the glorious garden city where God's people will live and know him truly with fountains of flowing water. There's a multitude of themes like that that we can chart through the whole Bible. It is astoundingly consistent. Whether it's Sabbath rest or God's promises or sacrifice, there is this richness to Scripture and salvation, which Matthew highlights for us here. Jesus is choosing to fulfill all of that. And frankly, I think we're meant to read it and marvel That's the main application. We need to read this and ask, what kind of king is this who gives himself for his people and has planned this from the very start of scripture? What kind of savior is this that he would choose the agony and loneliness of Gethsemane and then the ignominy of the cross for people like me? What kind of ruler is this that he rejects the easy option of sweeping his enemies away effortlessly? Legions of angels. And instead he submits himself to his father's will and sends himself to death in his people's place. Brothers and sisters, I think that's the crux of this passage. And so let's fix our eyes on this Jesus, this Lord of heaven who chose the cross for us. Let's marvel at the way that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises 
And then at the way that his resurrection gives a sure and certain guarantee that we can claim those promises through faith in him. And then let's worship him together. Why don't I pray for us before we sing? Father God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your astounding salvation plan, which comes to fruition at Easter Sunday as you raise him from our grave. Thank you that he was found worthy to suffer death and worthy then to sit on the throne with you. Thank you for the way that throughout your Bible and your spirit, you reveal this to us so that in him, we can begin to see the fullness of your glory. Thank you for the astounding invitation you make to each of us. That because of his obedience to your will, our price is paid. And all who turn to him can be made clean. Father, by your spirit, please equip us to respond and to worship you as you deserve. Amen.